the letter to the Galatians chapter 2 guests safe place to begin to read the Bible for yourself. If you didn't bring one, just grab your device and Google Galatians chapter 2, Galatians 2, and the initials ESV, or English Standard Version. That's what we're reading from. Galatians 2, ESV. You'll want to see it for yourself. I'll do all the rest. The, the letter to the Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. The translator heading reads, Paul opposes Peter. As you find your place this morning, we continue our study of, of the, the first major section of the Apostle Paul's earliest New Testament letter. And since the very beginning, the very opening of the letter, the Apostle Paul has been arguing that the Galatian churches, those churches, those first Christians who were gathered in the region of Galatia, that they should hold fast to the teachings and the message that he had delivered to them, had taught them the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. He writes, do not be persuaded, do not be persuaded by the troublemakers that have swooped in behind me after I left you. Paul, Paul is offering an autobiographical defense of the gospel, his experience, which concludes this morning with an astonishing tale account of an unthinkable conflict. It's apostle versus apostle. <laughs> it's Cephas versus Paul. And Cephas means, uh, it's Aramaic for the name Peter. So this is the apostle Paul versus the apostle Peter. What could two of the men who combined penned nearly a third of the New Testament be disagreeing with and about? Let's find out. Look with me. Galatians 2, beginning with verse 11. I'll read them. Pray. Follow along. Paul confronts Peter. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The very words of God, would you join me in a brief prayer for understanding. Father, speak to us again through your book. Show us the way of salvation, we want to see Jesus. Send your spirit, grant life, and health, and joy. Raise our, our convictions and conviction that there is no other way to be reconciled to you than through the finished work of Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. There was once a time 
in church history, first century, when the apostles were out of sync. The apostles were out of sync. Not with one another. Listen, that, that happened all the time. It's called being human. It's all over our New Testament. The apostles were men, after all. I'm talking about the gospel, out of sync with the gospel. That's what was boiling underneath the surface of this conflict that we just read. The apostles, particularly Peter, was out of sync with the gospel. If you look, verse 14, that, this is the issue. This is the rub. This is the stink. This is the problem. If you look again, verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... Something, something the Apostle Peter has detected was askew, off kilter. Not unlike today, if you think about it, like when you're streaming a video. I'm sure this has happened to you. You're streaming a video, it drives us nuts. The audio and the video are out of sync, right? It's unmistakable. It only takes about three milliseconds before everybody turns to the person with the remote control and says, you got to restart it. you got to restart it because their lips are off just a little bit from the soundtrack. And nobody can tolerate <laughs> out-of-sync video <laughs> and audio. It's painful to watch, is it not? And that, that's what's happening here. It's painful to watch. Something is out of sync with the truth of the gospel, and Paul finds it too painful not to say something. He sees something, he's saying something. And please keep in mind, keep in mind, the same could potentially be said of us as well. This isn't an apostolic problem. The same could be said potentially about us as well on any given day. Are there ways in which we behave, we live, we speak, that signals something that is untrue, out of sync, with that which we believe is true, the gospel? Are there any ways in which we behave, we live, that signal something that is untrue about that which we believe is true? And I'm again, I'm not, well, I'm not necessarily talking about the sins that you struggle with in particular. I'm talking right now about the sinful things we do, the sinful things we do to make ourselves appear better than we are. To make ourselves appear justified, righteous, godly, to look like a Christian, to look better than our neighbors, better than our fellow brothers and sisters. We, you might say, have the potential to virtue signal something that is less than virtuous. Self-promotion, perhaps, sometimes even self-preservation by violating the truth of the gospel. Are we in any way out of step with the truth of the gospel, which says that you can be forgiven for all your sins, this is the gospel, and be reconciled and united to your Creator, not on account of anything you are, or anything you have done or will ever do, but only because of Jesus who did it all on your behalf. End of story, end of the gospel, nothing more, nothing less. Hmm. Do, do I, do you, do we ever say with our actions that that, the gospel, is not enough? That there must be something more. Something more than grace alone through faith alone. In Jesus alone. We are vulnerable of the same thing that Paul is confronting 
Peter in this passage. So let's observe and watch. Let's watch the, the scene unfold, this conflict. Let's watch the fight and then apply it to ourselves. First, just asking the question, what did Peter do? What, what, what exactly did Peter do? Look again, verse 11. It says, but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was wrong. That's what that means there. He was wrong. Verse 12. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, this, is this group of men purportedly representing another apostle, the apostle James, who was a leader in the church in Jerusalem, the, the mother church, so to speak. Paul writes, before, when, when they came, he drew back. Peter drew back. He withdrew and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And, and there's a key there. Notice the motive. P Peter was a, afraid of this group. He's afraid of this group, this party that Paul calls the circumcision party, which is a really strange name for a party. <laughs> <coughs> and I recommend you not Google it, because at one point I thought, I wonder where this, is. and I Googled it, circumcision party, it's not what, <laughs> on Google is not what we find here. <coughs> I had no idea. <clears throat> this is a dig at them, <laughs> okay? Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, Peter, so that even Barnabas, and Barnabas was Jewish, but Barnabas had been with Titus, and they had traveled around together. Even Barnabas, one of Paul's closest companions, was led astray by their hypocrisy. What did, they, what, what did Peter do? He distanced himself from some Christians in order to gain a favorable standing with other Christians. That's it. He changed his relationship with some Christians so that he could gain the approval of other Christians. He broke fellowship with gentle, Gentile Christians in order to appease Jewish Christians. He signaled to everyone that he was better, better than his Gentile brothers and sisters. How? By no longer eating with them. Something's wrong with them, not wrong with me. And to make matters worse in doing so, this is what hypocrisy does. Oh, it's like a wrecking ball. The other Jewish Christians in Antioch, follow suit. They do the same. They followed Peter. Peter led them astray. Paul called them all hypocrites. It's like a virus. Just wrecking churches. But ask the question, what's wrong with that? Why is what Peter and his companions did wrong. Why is it wrong that he would distance himself from some Christians in order to gain favor, popularity, maybe some approval from other Christians? It's because Peter and all the other Jewish Christians who followed him and distanced themselves from the Gentile Christians knew that they were truly no better than those they are rejecting. 
Or perhaps a better way to say it, that they are shunning. Peter, the apostle, of all the apostles, knew better. He knew better. Peter knew that everything had changed, that before Jesus, God's people followed a a complicated series of regulations in order to relate to God. They had ceremonial laws to keep them spiritually clean. He knew that you could not, before Christ, draw near to God if you ate certain unclean foods or if you touched dead things or if you had a disease or someone else that you touched had a disease as well, and on, and that'd be dangerous right now with everyone with colds. And on 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 went the rules. And despite, and this is what's shocking, despite, despite Jesus explaining that with his arrival, the times of these laws had passed, as we read, in, we read in Acts 11 just a few months ago, God actually sent Peter a personal revelation of this. A vision, if you remember. A vision to show him why all the ceremonial laws were finished. Paul, Peter saw a great blanket, a, a great sheet full of animals forbidden for eating in the Old Testament. Think pigs, right? Stuff like that. And, and he heard a voice coming from the heavens. Kill and eat. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And immediately afterwards, this is what we read in, Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, Luke records that Peter met Cornelius, a Gentile who received Christ and was born again. And how does Peter respond? Not with skepticism, not with, well, we're going to have to check this out and read the books or whatever it is. No, he said, God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear them, fear him. That was it. That was it for Peter. Peter knew. Peter knew what he was doing, and still he acted differently, out of step with his convictions. Paul's not correcting his theology. He's correcting his life. He was out of step with his convictions, knowing that even he himself, Peter, had not earned any of this favor with God not, not from keeping the law, not from being circumcised, not from being Jewish, not from being one of the apostles. Peter knew that he had been saved. He himself had been saved by grace through faith. Peter was the first disciple to proclaim Jesus as the Christ. Oh, glory. For which Jesus called him blessed. Only quickly to stand in Jesus' way. For which Peter called him Satan. He was rebuked by Jesus for taking up the sword in the garden. He would deny Jesus three times after the crucifixion. Over and over and over again, God forgave Peter. And Peter, over and over again, fell short. He knew painfully well that all of this was on account of God's lavish grace and mercy and patience towards him. Not on account of his race, Jewish versus Gentile, or his family history, or his position in the church, or anything he had done or not done. Peter knew. How, 
One scholar puts it this way, however, right at this point. He says, by withdrawing from fellowship with the Gentile believers on the basis of the Gen Jewish law, the Jewish believers are, right here in this passage, in effect, demanding that the Gentile believers meet them on their Jewish terms. You want to relate to us? You're going to have to be like us. Which begs the question, as they were doing this, on what basis should Jews here in this context, first century, have withdrawn from fellow justified sinners? Christian, Christians who were Jewish by descent. On what basis should they have withdrawn from any other person, Jew or Gentile, who was justified by God? Or better for us, on what basis should we withhold fellowship from another Christian? On what basis should we withhold fellowship? I know you can't fellowship with everybody every day, 24-7. But in real life, in your walk, in the workplace, in the community, in the plethora of churches throughout our city, on what basis should we withhold fellowship from any of them? Now, don't get me wrong, there is certainly biblical warrant from withholding some of the deepest, closest, you might say, most important things about us with those who are unrepentant and stand as enemies of Christ. That's what church discipline is. That's why we reserve communion for those who can say that they are Christians. But then, after that, when should we withhold fellowship from another Christian? There is no reason. Period. To do so would be to say, you know, with your cold shoulder, <laughs> that you don't welcome them as Christ has welcomed you. That you've got to meet me on my own terms. You've got to be like me before I will welcome you. Now that's, that's precisely why Paul went out, came out swinging. <laughs> that's precisely what Paul said, well, I, Paul said what he said. Observation number two, second part of this story, if we think, what did Paul say? Right? What did Peter do? What did Paul say? Look at verse 14. I'm so glad that they didn't live in the internet age because we'd probably just be looking at 144 characters and some tweet somewhere. <laughs> Instead, we get the whole picture. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, right? And there's this diagnosis, right? This is, this is what's wrong, Paul continues. I said to Cephas before them all, publicly, make no mistake, here's what he said, if you though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Or in other words, why are you requiring 
the Gentiles to do something that you don't require of yourself. (laughs) Why are you asking the Gentiles to do something that you don't do? Even more interesting is, and this is how all fights begin, right? Something good happens and then something bad happens. Just prior to our passage, Paul said to Peter last week, we studied this, he said to Peter and, Paul said Peter and James and John had extended Paul, him, the right hand of fellowship. They were in agreement. They were united. Nothing but faith. Nothing but faith was required to be saved, to be welcomed into the household of God, to be brought near to God. It was radical. It was great. It made everybody uncomfortable, but they shook on it. Once you were strangers, once the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise that the Jews had enjoyed having no hope and without God in this world, Listen, this is how Paul writes it to the Ephesian Gentile Christians. He writes, but now in Christ, this is what they agreed to, but now in Christ you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, not by any rules. This is the biggest divide in the New Testament, Jews and Gentiles. He says, for he himself, Jesus is our peace, he told the Ephesian Gentiles, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is what they agreed upon. By abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances, all the rules, gone, that he might create in himself, Jesus, one new man in place of two. So making peace. And reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. They had no, no reason to not eat dinner together. Paul says it like it is. You hypocrites. Not, hey, let's go back again. Let's, let's check out some theological insight here. Now just, you, you know the gospel. And you're out of step with it. And you're doing it for your own gain. What should be required of Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus Christ? Again, the answer. Nothing. God didn't have fellowship with Peter on the basis of Peter's race or culture or his good works or his devotion or your race and your customs and your traditions. God established fellowship not on account of any of those things, not for them or for us. It wasn't that Peter was being seen and virtue signaling. It wasn't so much that it was that he wanted to be seen as holy that was wrong, but rather that he was the purpose by which he was doing these things 
As one writer said, the problem with the hypocrite is his motivation, not his actions necessarily. The problem with the hypocrite is his motivation. The hypocrite doesn't want to be holy. He only wants to be seen as holy. He's more concerned with his reputation for righteousness than actually becoming righteous. Peter knew this wasn't this withdrawal wasn't because he wanted to be holy. He knew already that he and they were and always would be in the eyes of that who is most important, God Himself, counted righteous and forgiven on account of not their law-keeping, rule-keeping, or any of the platforms of the circumcision party, but rather their union with Christ by faith, which came free and clear of any obligations to keep rules. Not a demand, not that God doesn't have a desire and a will to sanctify us and transform us, but when we're talking about how He saved us, this comes free and clear of any obligations other than to trust Him. Peter was in essence a free man in his head, in his heart, a free man in his relationship with God, now enslaving his fellow brothers and sisters imposing upon them demands that God Himself had not demanded of Him or them. So he writes this spaghetti of a sentence. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Listen. Maybe the worst of the worst forms of legalism. The hypocrisy of what one blogger called Pharisee-phobia. <laughs> Peter's afraid of the Pharisees. The Pharisee, so to speak, the Pharisee sees their relationship with God as one of give and take. going to going to follow these rules. Keep the covenant. I'll be circumcised. I'll do whatever it takes. Paul was one of them. But Peter and his companions that withdrew are even worse. They're afraid of the opinion of the one who has a high opinion of themselves. <laughs> the hypocrisy of Pharisee phobia. Peter was afraid of the Pharisees, and this undermined the very freedom that we know and believe is found in the gospel. Another scholar writes right at this point, he says, The sin of hypocrisy is not that we are more messed up than we seem. This is good news. Listen, the sin of hypocrisy is not that we are more messed up than we seem. That's true of all of us. And if, you're not in, if you think you're not in that category, I can explain it later. He, he writes, The sin is, sin of hypocrisy, is in using the appearance of goodness to cloak the deeds of evil. 
The sin is in thinking that who others think you are matters a great deal more than whom God knows you to be. As serious as this fight is, and I, like I said, it's like apostle versus apostle. You just stop right here and enjoy this letter for a second. The Galatians might be perhaps the fiercest, I said, some scholars call it the most explosive, clearest dismissal of salvation through human effort ever written. That's what this, it's just pure, unadulterated grace. This letter, this, this argument, this dispute, this, this opposition to hypocrisy and disfellowship between Christians, oh, it, it, it reminds us, listen, it reminds us to embrace the good news for what it is that Jesus alone fulfills the laws and the requirements that are needed for someone to be made right with God. They're fighting over it right in front of us. So good. But let me ask this last question. Now we've seen the fight. Last observation, number three. What Peter did, what, what Paul said. Finally, what, what, what should we do? And it's right, stated right there in the text. It's stated positively, what should we do? <clears throat> May our conduct... This is a, may our conduct be in step with the truth of the gospel. It's that simple. May our conduct be in step with the truth of the gospel. And if you're asking, again, what is the truth of the gospel? Oh, it's the good news. This is good news that we, sinners, guilty, under judgment of God, may be pardoned and accepted by sheer grace and nothing else. This is the good news. This is the truth of the gospel. That his, we can be accepted by His free and unmerited favor on the grounds of His Son's death and resurrection and life and not on anything we do. Not our works, not our merits. More briefly, listen, if I could say it even shorter, the truth of the gospel is the doctrine of justification, which means, and we're going to get to this next week, the doctrine of justification, which means acceptance before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, period. So what do we do? How do we respond? How do we, how do we apply what they're fighting for, right? What does this look like? Well, I'll give it to you in a common thing we say often around here, out of Romans, another one of Paul's letters. We welcome all who have turned and trusted in Christ just as Christ has welcomed us. It's that simple. We welcome everyone. We welcome every. We don't require anything. We welcome all who, with their entire lives, have repented of their sins, turned away from trying to save themselves and please themselves, turned away from trying to be the center of the universe, which never works out because everybody is wanting to be the center of the universe, and that's why we get angry at one another because we're not giving each other what we want. We turn away from that and accept and believe and trust, throw ourselves on Christ 
and then welcome others who do the same. No list of demands. No, you're going to have to do it my way in order for me to befriend you and welcome you. If God has accepted them, how can we reject them, right? That's the application. If God has accepted them, how could we reject them? If he receives them into his fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how can we deny their fellowship with us? He has reconciled them to himself. How can we withdraw from them? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. There's the application. Listen, there is a life in step with the gospel, and there is a life out of step with the gospel. You don't obtain the benefits of the gospel by doing a little moral cleanup and kind of changing and maybe like assimilating into the culture of your local church, whatever your local church is. No, you get it through the power of God expressed and seen in the gospel of Jesus whose finished work on the cross accomplishes everything. It's finished. And then your rhythm of life looks like that. Especially when it relates to how you relate to others who have experienced the same. (laughs) This is the incredible truth of what God has done through us. That if you trust this truth that's found in the gospel, not only will your life be changed and your relationship with God be transformed forever and your future brighter than you can imagine, but you'll find others that you have been enemies with, who you have no common things with, who are very different than you. You'll find them to be some of your closest companions. There's a way to live in step with the gospel and out of step with the gospel. We're either living proof that God has done what he has done in the gospel, in the way we relate to one another, or we live denying the grace of God. We're never neutral. You're never neutral in any of your experiences. Listen, one, one scholar, he says, pointing to our orthodox doctrinal statements, pointing to those things which we believe, wonderful as they are, is not a refuge when reading Galatians 2. You can't say, we believe the same things, we just sit on opposite sides of the aisle and do our own thing. He writes, faithfulness faithfulness to the gospel is also a matter of pressing the grace revealed in our doctrine into every relationship all the time. (laughs) This is not a matter of personal niceness. It's a matter of biblical authority. We have no future without it. The gospel. Now, I struggled, and I hope this encourages you, I struggled all week long with identifying, we'll say, where systemically we walk out of step with the gospel as a community, a local church. 
This was so encouraging. I, it was frustrating at times to find places where you have not welcomed someone who's different than you. Not brought them into your house, gave of your own goods, your own money, your own time, your own affections, even when they don't give it back. Oh, I have had to defend you at times. I've had to defend you at times against other pastors. <coughs> and I, I can see myself in the same spot. I have had emails and phone calls and coffees. They weren't very good coffee meetings, but good coffee meetings about how you are relating to other people who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, but somehow just don't measure up to their expectations of who you should be right now. <laughs> so I struggled and struggled, so I, so I just started looking at other churches in the area and seeing what they're doing wrong. No, I'm joking. <laughs> just trying to be in step with the gospel, <laughs> the truth of the gospel. <laughs> I started listening, though, potential. I'm sure everyone on this list, every one of these things is something I am guilty of. Probably some of you as well. But I started listing them and it looked ugly. Favoritism. You have something that I enjoy and so I like you more and I relate to you closer than I do to others. You entertain me. I'm guilty of this one. So I find myself around your table or you in my house around my table as opposed to the one who's going to zap us all of energy as we try to help them and care for them. Racism. Just start right out into the most ugliest. That somehow a brother or sister who comes from a different place from a different family, with a different culture that I don't understand, somehow that I would have to require them to be like me. And if they can't be like me, like racism, a demand they cannot meet, and I cannot meet either, legalism in all its forms, a self-centeredness that that ends up everything is about me and turns in towards me and curves in towards me and not others. A, a selfishness. You might say a stinginess. An argumentative persona. Particularly online. Just fighting everybody that doesn't agree with me. A complaining spirit. Being greedy. And oh, how generous you are. I love it. I want to say never. I'll say nearly ever a need that does not need to go met because of your generosity towards one another. Gossip and slander, taking sides, sinful speech, <laughs> focusing and uh, uh, making that which is of secondary importance more important than that which is of first importance, being known for our secondary issues, whatever those issues would be for you, theologically or in practice or customs, and instead making those 
front and center rather than that which is most important, which is the gospel. Uh, listen, like tribalism, like we're all, like, like for us, and you've been around for a while, we're part of a family of churches called Sovereign Grace Churches, and to somehow think that Sovereign Grace Churches, of which, I don't know, there's a couple hundred around the world, are the only churches. I don't detect that in us, but may it never be. Not being hospitable, inhospitable. Bidiality, whatever that word is. <laughs> Here's one. It just struck me. It's so big out there right now. Christian nationalism. Which I don't even know what that says to all my friends, my brothers and sisters who I've been making fun of during the World Cup that aren't Americans. That <laughs> somehow... This, what we enjoy, is something that they cannot enjoy because they're not an American. Hero worship, celebrityism, uh, being a sectarian, like we're, we're the only, we're the keepers of the truth and we stand and we're known for what we're against rather than what we're for. Being persnickety, I, I hit that, I think that was like Friday, it just hit me like, we could be persnickety. We could expect certain things, demand certain things when people don't come in and, ex- and enter into our lives in a way in which we just enjoy and it's our preferences that makes us angry. Licentiousness. We just gobble it all up ourselves. <laughs> Maybe best of all, pandemics. And demanding of one another to all respond to a pandemic the same way brothers sisters you put on a clinic in loving and preferring others i still remember asking we took a poll can we come inside the building yet it seems like no one on planet earth has COVID anymore whatever it was and i remember all the responses were the same I'll stay outside as long as it doesn't, as long as someone doesn't want to come inside. You're just preferring one another, laying aside your preferences and your opinions. You put on a clinic in having fellowship on the basis of grace alone through faith alone. But all that said, maybe we never be so foolish as to think we've settled the matter. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, somehow our doctrinal faithfulness and our practices will somehow perf- perfect us or preserve us from the terrible, ugly sin of hypocrisy. I love when people walk in and they encounter you. What do they encounter? They encounter the freest people on planet Earth, people who are generous, people who are patient, flexible, not easily angered, quiet, gracious, merciful. And they, oftentimes you may be a guest, and I don't normally spend so much time encouraging the church and all they've done. Usually I can find something something for us to really press in hard into. But listen, this is what they encounter when they walk into this room. And if you're a guest, I hope it's what you're encountering. Maybe we may have an off Sunday. But we find, I find, guest after guest asks, saying to me, 
there's something different here. There's something, there's something different here. And I oftentimes say, and you've heard me say, it's because we're Christians. Listen, may the people who walk in among us experience what we have experienced. They would experience a sureness that all their sins have been forgiven and not doubt because someone has an extra rule or demand upon them, spoken explicitly or implicitly. May people who encounter us and are welcomed into our fellowship experience confidence in Christ especially in suffering. May they be joyful as you are joyful. May they say the same thing we would say over and over and over again. What kind of God would forgive sins like mine? May we be people who are in step with the truth of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your words again. And, and that, that as we've been reading in Galatians, we see the story of the Apostle Paul defending the truth of the gospel, preserving it for us. And may it be the same here among us. Root out the places in which we are attempting to please others that we might please ourselves. Give us grace to welcome others as you have welcomed us. And Father, most of all, I pray that as this gospel rings out among us, you would find us all the more confident in the finished work of Christ, forsaking anything we could do to earn your favor and instead rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.